Jesus, walking this earth, finds himself in a constant battle with oppression and injustice and evil. He was an exorcist, among other things, casting out demons where he found them and restoring folks to their right mind. I used to believe in the devil. I don't know if I do anymore in the conventional sense. But I still believe in evil. And evil twists what is good, often finding a foothold in faith and good intentions. As Shakespeare wrote in The Merchant of Venice, even the devil incites scripture for his purpose. An evil soul producing holy witness is like a villain with a smiling cheek, a goodly apple, rotten at the heart. In this scripture, when Jesus sends his disciples across the land to cast out devils, he worries for them. Not that they'll fail, but they'll, that they'll become proud of their success and the power they wield, knowing full well that power corrupts. The reading today is from the Gospel of Luke. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. Indeed, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. There's a little-known anecdote about the philosopher Socrates, whose clothes were torn in a heated argument with Plato about the role of religion in the affairs of the state. Upon seeing the torn garments, Socrates' tailor says, Ah, Euripides? <laughs> Socrates replies, Yes, Eumenides? True story. In his final work, Iphigenia and Aulus, the playwright Euripides tells the story of the Greek king Agamemnon and his ill-fated daughter Iphigenia. In the early days of the Trojan War, as Agamemnon is about to set sail for Troy with his fleet, he finds his army stranded on the shores of Aulus. The winds and the waves surge against his ships, driving them back toward the coast every time they try to depart. 
And Agamemnon's counselor, a priest of Apollo, says that he has offended the goddess Artemis, who is sending the wind against him. The only way to appease her, he tells Agamemnon, is to sacrifice his beloved daughter, Iphigenia. Now, while this makes for great drama, I think it illustrates the dangers of kings and rulers who rely too much on superstition rather than reason. This plays out in real life all the time, particularly in theocratic nations like Pakistan and Iran, even colonial New England, home of our own Congregationalist forebears. I can remember being at a denominational conference a few years ago and the presenter was talking about all of the wonderful things that our wider church, the United Church of Christ, has done throughout our history. We advocated freedom for slaves, she boasted, writing the first anti-slavery tract 300 years ago. We were the first denomination to ordain an openly gay man in 1972 and the first to ordain a woman all the way back in 1853. Don't forget about the Salem witch trials back in 1692. I whispered a little too loudly to the guy next to me who frowned and shifted uncomfortably in his seat, which he attempted to move a few inches away from me. In all seriousness, it's true that our denomination has usually been on the right side of history. And that's something to celebrate. That doesn't mean we should sweep our mistakes under the rug and pretend that they never happen. We are all, each and every one of us, capable of good and evil. To wit, Samuel Sewell, the guy who wrote that first anti-slavery tract, was also a judge and a witch hunter in Salem. Our ancestors committed terrible crimes and atrocities in that small Massachusetts hamlet. In those days, there was no separation of church and state. The colonial government was deeply religious and rather superstitious. They firmly believed in the devil and his wicked machinations, that cosmic forces were working to undermine their fledgling society. Dark forces lurked in those old woods, and they would bring all the powers of the church and state to bear in combating. So it was that 20 people mostly women, were tortured and executed in the name of God and the municipal government. I had the occasion to visit a museum in Salem a few years ago and see the dungeons these people were kept in, tormented on account of wild superstition and theocratic fanaticism run amok. I can understand why no one wants to talk about it, but it's also an important lesson about the dangers of state-sponsored religion, a lesson that we ignore at our own peril. Jesus believed in evil, too. He often exercised demons from people afflicted with possession. He gave his disciples the authority to cast these spirits out, too. and He gave them power over these corrupt entities. But Jesus was also well aware of the danger that power brings, namely that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You see, these 70 disciples that Jesus ordains, they, they relish their newfound abilities. They are so proud of themselves. They walk the earth roaming from town to town, vanquishing evil. And when they return to Jesus, they boast of their powers. Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. Jesus' response is telling. 
I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning, he replies. Or as it says in the book of Proverbs, pride goeth before the fall. Jesus is trying to tell them, I think, that power changes us. And that in seizing it, there's a real danger of becoming the very thing that you are fighting. One of my favorite scriptures concerns David and the giant Goliath. As a young boy, David slew the massive Philistine with little more than a sling and a stone. But that's not the whole story. You see, many years later, when David's all grown up and he's on the run from King Saul, who thinks that David is trying to seize the throne, he seeks refuge in a temple. And David tells the priests there that he's in need of food, lodging, and weapons. The priest explains that they have no weapons save for the blood-stained sword of Goliath, preserved there as a kind of curio. Give it to me, David replies. There is none other like it. From that moment, David's fortunes shift. Before long, he becomes king, and King David is a far cry from the faithful child who slew Goliath. He's changed. His faith corrupted by political power, wielding it carelessly for his own personal gain. In a sense, David has become Goliath, a force of violence and destruction, symbolized in that legendary sword. Do not rejoice at this, Jesus tells his disciples. Do not rejoice that your enemies submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The church, with a capital C, has long struggled with its own power. What began as a small grassroots community of disciples gathering in people's homes, even meeting in secret at times of Roman persecution, eventually grew to dominate Western civilization. The Roman Emperor Constantine was sympathetic to the early Christian movement, and he issued the Edict of Milan, in the year 313, allowing for all religions to be practiced freely within the Roman Empire. About 75 years later, the Emperor Theodosius issued the Edict of Thessalonica, which made Christianity the official state religion of the empire. And while Christians of that time surely rejoiced, in hindsight, this reversal of fortune marked a dark turn of faith. Suddenly flush with coin, the church used the Roman treasury to build massive cathedrals across Europe. Beautiful, transcendent even, but surrounded by flocks of hungry peasants that received only a fraction of this wealth, most of it serving to build these towering edifices and to enrich corrupt clergymen. Once persecuted, the church came to wield the full power of the state and used it to persecute others. So-called apostasy was not tolerated, and the Middle Ages saw numerous inquisitions intended to root out heretics. Over the course of nearly 600 years, over a million people were executed by the church, faring no better than the so-called witches of Salem. As the church's influence grew, the clergy also began selling indulgences, offering them the opportunity to by their way out of purgatory, fleecing the poor with these spiritual insurance plans. This continued 
as many of us know, until Martin Luther, a disillusioned priest, nailed his manifesto to the doors of the church in Wittenberg in 1517, condemning the rampant corruption of the institutional church and inadvertently launching the Protestant Reformation. This, of course, would lead back to a bunch of Congregationalists leaving Europe for the freedom of the New World, establishing their own institutional authority, and again, using it as a cudgel against anyone who strayed from their orthodoxy. And this, this takes us right back to where we started, the Salem Witch Trials. Say nothing of the folks who were put in the stocks for missing church on Sunday. I keep trying to bring that one back. But, uh, no one seems to like that idea. There's a clear pattern in church history, a dynamic that plays out over and over and over again, a vicious cycle. We saw it in the Middle Ages, we saw it in the American colonies, and I worry that we're beginning to see it play out again in our own time. A group of Christians is marginalized in one way or another, or they believe themselves to be. And they eventually grow in influence until there is little separation between the church and the state, until the church effectively is the state. And then, with the theocracy effectively in place, they punish anyone who shares different beliefs. Jesus warned us about this, about the corrupting influence of power. He knew it well, which is why he flat out refused to topple Rome or restore the Davidic dynasty or seize any kind of civic political authority, including being called the King of the Jews. Jesus speaks often about the kingdom of heaven. But it's very clear that this is not some kind of government institution. My kingdom, he says repeatedly, is not of this world. And when he deftly replies to a question about paying taxes, Jesus makes a clear distinction between church and state. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus says, and unto God's what is God's. Jesus is not interested in theocracy. He knows how easily religion, when given the authority of the state, can become a weapon. As Martin Luther once said, when God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. Even faith, especially twisted into something else. Now look, real talk, I don't know if we're actually in danger of a budding theocracy here in America, but I know that a lot of folks are worried about it. It's all I've been hearing about the last couple of weeks. The Supreme Court's formal overturning of Roe versus Wade, a lot of people are scared. This isn't just about access to abortion, which I talked about recently and won't get into today, but rather this is the first time that such a significant constitutional right has been taken away. People are worried about what legal precedents might be challenged, and for good reason. Justice Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion on abortion access, wrote that they, quote, should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. Now these cases were about contraception, same-sex intimacy, and same-sex marriage, respectively. We have a duty to 
Thomas wrote, to correct the error established in those precedents. Now, some will argue that if I believe in the separation of church and state, I have no business talking about the judicial branch and the pulpit. Fair enough. But these decisions are religiously motivated. All of them champion causes of the Christian right who believe that America is a Christian nation and have been campaigning for decades to get access to the lever's political power. And if the Supreme Court does decide to revoke gay marriage or forbid same-sex relationships, well, that is unequivocally in opposition to what this church is all about. And if we can't talk about that here, well, what are we about? We might as well all just go home. On this 4th of July weekend, let's remember what America is and what it is not. It's not a Christian nation. It's not a theocracy, but rather a place where all people are free to pursue whatever faith they choose. We're a nation of Muslims and Jews, Sikhs and Hindus, Buddhists, and yes, Christians. Say nothing of people of no faith at all. But Jesus never forced his religion on anyone. He only invited them to imagine a more compassionate world. Faith is not a mandate. It's not a law. It's an invitation. Jesus invites us to the table, regardless of who we are or where we are on life's journey or what we may believe. As Jesus says, do not rejoice in submission. And at this table, 